Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. We're currently teaching through the Gospel of John. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Good morning, everyone. Um, again, I'll be reading from John 1, 35 through 42. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You know what, just in, in light of the, the recent tragedy in um, Roseburg, Oregon, I just want to start off by, by praying for them. Um, would you join me? Um, Father, uh, some of us come with, with heavy hearts uh, to you this morning, uh, just in churches uh, around the country, Lord. Um, we just pray um, for those victims and their families, Lord, that um, you would be their comfort, um, that they would turn to you in this time, not knowing why this may have happened, but Lord, um, knowing that you're good and that you're in control. And I just pray for us, Lord, that we would have um, the same courage uh, that some of those that died did uh, to claim you even um, when we have a gun to our head. And uh, again, we pray for them. We pray that you would do a work um, even this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome. Good morning, guys. Um, I am not Eric. <laughs> That's the first thing. My name is Josh. I'm actually the college pastor here at Covenant Grace. And uh, I just wanted to um, start off by uh, giving you a description of a person. And you got to tell me who the person is, all right? Can we do that? Okay, so a young boy from a wealthy family is orphaned after his parents are killed during a mugging go wrong. He grows up to run a billion-dollar company, and he fights crime on the side. <laughs> An officer killed in the line of duty is brought back to life through medical uh, advancements in technology and is able to fight crime as the perfect cyborg cop. Um, a genius is kidnapped by an evil military regime and forced to build weapons for them. Instead, he builds an armor suit escapes and uses the suit to fight crime. There's a, there's a, a trend, uh, there's a theme here, right? A nuclear physicist is accidentally bombarded with gamma rays during an experiment and is now transformed whenever he gets mad. Born on a distant planet and then sent to Earth, before his home planet was destroyed, he now disguises himself as a mild-mannered reporter. A group of four pet turtles are accidentally dropped <laughs> down a sewer that's been contaminated with toxic slime, and they're taught martial arts by a sensei rat. <laughs> um, in case you didn't get it, all of, these, um, all of these are the origin stories from superheroes that are 
you know, familiar to most of us anyway. I think most of us got, hey, you guys got them. I think you guys got them. And what's interesting about these origin stories is they're all stories of, um, of, of amazing transformation. They're the circumstances that made these people, that made these superheroes who they are. And um, there, there's actually some academic work that has been done on superheroes, believe it or not. So uh, Dr. Kent Worcester, he's a professor of political science at uh, Marymount Manhattan College. He writes, almost all superheroes have an origin story, a bedrock account of the transformative events that set the protagonists apart from ordinary humanity. The superhero genre is about transformation, about identity, about making a difference. And so this morning, what we're going to be doing is looking at John 1. We're going to be looking at a sort of origins story for the first disciples that started um, following Jesus. So what was that like? And, and our writer here, John, it's, it's so cool because we get an autobiographical account. We get his point of view of what it's like, what, what, what it was like taking those first steps of faith. Because these aren't just ordinary men, right, that follow Jesus. These aren't ordinary men that we read about in the book of John. These are men that the Bible says would end up uh, turning the world upside down. These are the type of men that will turn the world upside down. But it all started with one step, right? Um, And you've you've probably heard the well-known saying, and it's so true, that a journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. So every journey has a first step. Every story begins with a single page, right? And um, this one's no different. Um, So if you're joining us this morning, and you're just maybe investigating Christianity, maybe you came with a friend, um, I'm hoping that this morning through this passage, you'll get to see what it might look like for you to take your first steps towards Jesus, what, what your origin story might be like. And for those of us that are here that, you know, have your own origin story, you have your own uh, story of when you first started um, walking with Jesus and those kind of first steps. Uh, we want to reflect on that. And we want to be the type of community that helps people take those first steps. So how can we help people take their first, first steps? And so we're going to be looking at this passage in John 1. And we're really going to be looking at three things. So three things in this passage um, that uh, kind of show how people, the ways in which people first start coming to follow Jesus. So those three things are people come to follow Jesus through gospel proclamation, through gospel investigation, and through personal invitation. So proclamation, investigation, and invitation. Um, So let me pray uh, once again, and then we'll dive in. Father, thank you um, for just allowing us uh, to to dig into your word this morning, Lord. Um, I pray, uh, Father, that you um, would open our hearts um, and, and our eyes to see um, just the wonderful things that you have for us in your word this morning. We thank you for this book. We thank you um, that John sat down to write it so long ago, um, Lord, and we are able to pick, uh, pick up the, those words that he wrote down, and, uh, and he gives us such a great picture, such a great glimpse of you in it. Um, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, People come to Jesus through gospel proclamation. So what is a proclamation? So a proclamation, the actual definition of a proclamation, is a public or official announcement, especially one dealing with a matter of great importance. And, you know, love it or hate it, the 
uh, platform for proclamation, modern proclamation, is what? Social media, exactly, right? So Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, all, these are all today's major platforms of proclamation. The problem is, and the reason why some of you rolled your eyes when we mentioned social media is there's so much bad proclamation out there on it, right? And usually you can tell bad proclamation, it has two characteristics. You either can't trust the message or you can't trust the source. And that's like a pretty good test for, okay, is this good or not? Is Facebook really going to start charging tomorrow unless I, you know, like download all, all this, uh, this stuff? I, I, we have no idea unless we check the source and we check to see if it's a trustworthy message. And so in this passage, we see right off, first, uh, first off, that the gospel comes, the, this gospel proclamation comes from a trusted source. So if you look at verse 35 in the passage, um, it says, The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. So we're given this picture right away of a person who's bringing the message. And what, can we, what, what do we know about John? What have we already learned about John? Well, in the last few weeks, Eric taught a little bit about this guy, John, this character of John. And he is strange. I mean, no doubt, right? So he's, he's walking around. He shows up on the scene, and he's wearing camel hair. He's eating locusts, these little uh, grasshoppers, basically, and honey. Uh, and he's got this, uh, he, he's a hairy guy, uh, definitely. So um, he's just a strange person, but he's got a heart of gold, doesn't he? And that's what we find out real quick, um, that he's this humble servant of Jesus in John 3, which we'll get to in, in, in a couple weeks. Um, he, he wants nothing more than for Jesus to increase and for himself to decrease. Um, he's this humble servant, and, and Jesus, actually, in Matthew 11, calls John the greatest man who has ever lived, the greatest man born of woman. And so we, we get this picture of John um, from the context, but we also get this picture of John from our passage. So in verse 35, um, he shows up with two of his disciples. And the first question you want to ask is, well, what is a disciple? What does this relationship look like between John and these two men that are on the scene? And one biblical scholar put it this way. In the New Testament, the word disciple does not appear except in the gospel and Acts. And when it does... It's never a case of a pupil or a student who receives instruction from a master, but always of someone who shares a close and definitive relationship with one person. So this is a close relationship that John shares with these men, and it's in this context of this discipleship relationship, this close relationship, that he's able to give them to pass along this trusted message. And what's the message? So uh, what's the message that he's passing on? Take a look at verse uh, 36. And he looked at Jesus, John did. John looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the disciples, the two disciples, heard him saying this, and they followed Jesus. Uh, so here we get just a short kind of glimpse of the, what this message is. It's a short picture. It's, it's just, Behold the Lamb of God. And for us, you might think, I don't know if that would be enough for me to just give up everything and start following Jesus. But for these two men, in the rich context that they had, think about it. They've had a long relationship with John, for one. And also, this Lamb of God language carries with it about a, 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 about a thousand or two thousand years 
of context for a Jewish person in this time for a first century Jewish person. And to get a sense um, of this message, we have to, this message, behold the Lamb of God, we have to step into their shoes. We have to step into their time. What are they hearing when they hear, behold the Lamb of God? They are hearing something that goes way back to the beginnings of the Old Testament. Right? They're hearing this Lamb of God who first shows up on the scene in Genesis 22. You remember the story with Isaac and Abraham? So Abraham, uh, God is, is promised Abraham this son. And God really also wants Abraham to trust him. And so God instructs Abraham to bring Isaac up to that hill. And, and, and Isaac doesn't know what's going on, but Abraham is bringing him up to sacrifice his only son. And as they're walking up, the hill, Isaac says, Dad, where's the lamb? You know, he knows we're going up to sacrifice. He says, Dad, where's the lamb? And in verse 8 of Genesis 22, Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. So this lamb of God is a lamb that would be sacrificed for sin and that would take the place um, for for. I, uh, for Isaac in, in this case. And I hope it's not a spoiler alert, but Abraham does not sacrifice Isaac on that hill. That lamb is sacrificed instead, right, in its place. And then we see the lamb of God um, show up again in Exodus 22 in Passover. So the final plague um, to really uh, persuade Pharaoh to let God's people go out of Egypt is uh, the, the um, death of the firstborn in every home. And in, in, in uh, Moses instructs uh, God's people that they, that they should kill a lamb and they should put that blood over uh, the doorpost. And so in every home on that, that tragic night, there was either blood over a door or there was a dead son inside that home. And that lamb provided the covering um, so that those homes would be passed over if they were trusting in God, if they were putting their hope and their trust in him. And then in Isaiah, in Isaiah, later on in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 53, Isaiah is talking about this, this promised um, one to come, this promised Messiah, this suffering servant. And he says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, stricken for the sins of my people. That is the picture. That is what these men have in the back of their minds when John says, Behold the Lamb of God. It's this Lamb, it's this promised Lamb that, that, that throughout the whole Old Testament, God has been promising um, this Lamb that would uh, cover the sins of his people, right? And this Lamb, not only does it show us how much God loves us, but it shows us the seriousness of our own sin. Right? It show us, shows us the ugliness of our sin. Look at what sin does. It destroys, it rips apart, it's bloody, it's messy. Um, the Lamb of God shows us that sin is, is literally a bloody mess. But also it shows us the love of God who would cover our sins by taking that mess upon himself. Right? And so what we see at the cross is Jesus, this perfect Lamb of God, not just covering, um, the, 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 taking the place of Isaac or 
um, the, the Jewish people in Egypt or in, in Babylon, but taking on the sin of the world. And when John says, behold the Lamb of God, he is saying, look, this is the, the, the covering that God has provided for you. And so, of course, these men are going to, to give up everything, and they're going to they're gonna start following Jesus. And that's fine with John. That's exactly what John wanted here in this passage. And that's the power of the gospel, isn't it? That's what this gospel proclamation can do. And that's the reason why when people hear this message, they're willing to say, you know what? I'm going to give up everything. That's why people are willing to face even death because they know that death is not the end. And I just want to ask you, you know, do you have that type of relationship that John had with, with these disciples? You know, maybe it's a discipleship type relationship or maybe it's a close relationship where you're, you're um, you know, making, uh, building relationships so that in that context, when you say to somebody, behold, the Lamb of God, or when you say, hey, take a look at Jesus, look at his life, they know that that message is coming from a trusted source. It's coming from somebody that, that they can trust. Um, and and uh, so Albert Einstein, I didn't know he read his Bible, but it sounds like he re- re- reads his Bible because he said, um, whoever is careless with the truth in small matters cannot be trusted with important matters. Uh, and, and it echoes um, something that, that Jesus says in, in Luke 16, that um, you know, if we're, we're faithful in little things, we're going to be faithful with, you know, we're going to be trusted with big things. Um, so are you, are, you, are you trustworthy in, in little things? And, and do you build those relationships so that when, when you have the opportunity to, to uh, share Christ, um, it comes from a trusted source? In John's proclamation, Behold the Lamb of God, it was enough for these disciples to give up everything and leave and follow. Um, but, you know, my question is, is, is it enough for you? And for some of us, it may not be. And that's okay. And if you're here and you're joining us, this morning you're investigating Christianity, you might need a little bit more than that. And that's okay. Because what we see in this same passage is uh, those disciples, they go to check it out, right? So, um, you know, secondly, they, people come to follow Jesus through investigation, right? Through gospel investigation. So take a look at verse um, 38. Take a look at verse 38. Um, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. For it was about the tenth hour. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So here, take a look at what Jesus is inviting these men to do. I think it's, it's so cool. So he's inviting these men. First he asks them, what are you seeking? So he's inviting them to seek. He says, where are you staying? He invites them to stay, um, and then he says, come and see. So he invites them to stay, seek, stay, come and see. And they go with Jesus, and they spend a little bit of time with him, and they investigate his claims. And you, you might think, well, that's all well and fine if you can go with Jesus and stay with him and hear from him, but what about us? You know, what about us today? We can't just do that. Well, today, it's, it's an even better opportunity for us to investigate Jesus because we have, we have um, four different accounts and then we have lots and lots of letters that are written about this man. And so we can investigate it 
by looking at these accounts and by digging deep into these accounts. Um, so you might be, you know, you might be the type of, of person that, that really likes to dig in deep to scriptures, and you might even have some questions, uh, and or or you might be somebody that's just seeking, and you, you say, well, what would that look like? You know, what would it look like for me to really investigate? And so let's look. What, what would it look like? Let, let's take a look. Let's say you're reading this passage, and you're looking close, and you're looking for details. You're kind of trying to pick it apart, which is a good thing. It's a great thing. You're a little skeptical about the claims. Was this really written by somebody that I can trust? Was it written by somebody who actually met Jesus? Was it, um, is, is this, or, or is it somehow, you know, maybe put together later or some kind of legend, legendary story? Well, you take a look at this passage, and you might be the type of person that really digs in deep, and you notice something that John doesn't do. Okay, so if John's the writer of this book, um, then if you look at verse 37, he just says, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And you might think, two disciples? That's not very descriptive. You know, who are these two disciples? If you're there, John, why didn't you include the names of these two disciples? So you start reading a little bit further, and then you see, okay, in verse 40, um, it says, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And then you say, okay, well, maybe he got one of them, but why doesn't he just tell us who the other disciple is? Well, you know, somebody might take that, and if you're a, um, you know, if you're a, 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 a professional skeptic of Christianity, if you're a professor, you might say something like this, um, like uh, one, one um, scholar uh, put it, puts it this way. He says, um, I, uh, I, but there's an even higher probability that John could not write at all. He was a fisherman from rural Galilee. Fishermen were not educated. They were very low-class peasants. John would never have gone to school. I think there's virtually no chance that the historical John of Zebedee um, wrote the gospel. And that's, by a, um, that, that's a quote from a, a biblical scholar. His name is Bart Ehrman. He's not a Christian scholar. Um, he, a lot of times he, he kind of wants to stir up some doubt. And you might say, okay, close the book. You know, that's it. You know, there's that, he wasn't there, and, and that settles it. But I would urge you to dig a little deeper. Dig a little deeper. What's actually going on here? Why, isn't, why didn't John name that other disciple? You might want to read the rest of the book of John. Because in the rest of the book of John, you see in John 13, whoever wrote John has a habit of doing this as a habit of not naming one disciple in particular. So in John 13, verse 23, uh, at the Last Supper, this is at the Last Supper, it says um, in verse 23, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at Jesus' side. So there he is again, there he goes again, not, not laying down any details. And then you look at John 19, and on the cross, Jesus sees his mother and it says in verse 26, this is John 19, 26, he saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. And then in John 20, at the resurrection, again, this no-name disciple shows up. And this time, he beats Peter in a foot race um, to get to the tomb first. And so it says, so uh, she ran out and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And then after the resurrection again, in John 21, verse 7, 
That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And then in John 21, we finally, at the end of it, we get um, a little bit more information about who this mystery disciple is. And um, in John 21, verse 24, um, it says, talking about the disciple whom Jesus loved, this disciple is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. So this guy ends up being the author of the book. And why does he leave himself nameless through, uh, that through, through the entire book almost? It's not because he's a sloppy writer and he just misses details. Or it's not because it was written much later. It's because the person that's writing this down is John himself. And rather than write about himself over and over again, he, he decides in humility just to say, call himself the other disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. And, and um, going through that and digging deep into those questions really helps to answer um, some of those difficulties. And I think in many cases, it can strengthen our faith. And in fact, um, what we see in John is something that we don't see in any other of uh, the writings around that first century. We see details. You know, we were just saying, well, where are all the details? Where are all the names? Well, John goes out of his way to include details. And if you look, take a look at verse um, 39 again, he says, He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Why does John include that in this passage? Why does he include that it was about the tenth hour, which for our time would be about four? It has nothing to do with the narrative at all. He includes a detail because he was there, and he's writing about it. Um, C.S. Lewis uh, talks about these kind of details in the Gospels, and he says, Now, as a literary historian, I am perfectly convinced that whatever else the Gospels are, not, uh, are they are not legends. I've read a great deal of legend, and I'm quite clear that they are not this sort of thing. The Gospels often contain unnecessary, unnecessary detail, and there is nothing like this. Even in modern literature until about a hundred years ago when the realistic novel came into existence. The art of inventing little irrelevant details to make an imaginary scene more convincing is a purely modern art. Surely the only explanation of this passage is that it really happened. The author put it in simply because he had seen it. So where would you be able to do this type of investigation is your question, I'm sure. Well, we've got, we've got small groups that are starting this week. And these are the exact types of things we love to dig into. Um, those, those tough questions um, that uh, for so many people uh, may cause them to just kind of write off the Christian message. So small groups are a great place to do that seeking and that staying, that coming, and that seeing um, that, that Jesus offers these first disciples. They're a great place for gospel investigation. And in fact, that whole thing that we just kind of went through with, with uh, kind of investigating who that first disciple was, we sent those questions out, that same question, um, if you're on the email list this week. We actually sent that out, so you could have done that on your own. So small groups are a great place to grow in your faith, um, to get connected uh, to people, um, so to, to build those types of relationships 
um, where you can ask those tough questions. They're a great place to invite people who are seeking and who are um, trying to have some of those questions answered. So some people come to follow Jesus through that type of investigation. But some people just come through personal invitation. And this is the last part here. Take a look at verse 40. So one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. So the other one we now know is John. And and the other one is Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. In verse 41, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, so you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So take a look. Um, Andrew here, who we don't hear a whole lot about Andrew in the rest of the book of John, or even in the rest of, of the disciples, or in the rest of the Gospels. He's definitely an important disciple. You know, someday I'll probably meet Andrew, and I don't want him to get the wrong idea that I, I, I was somehow saying he wasn't important. Super important, but Peter completely overshadows him, doesn't he? And yet it was Andrew who first invited Peter um, to come see Jesus. It was his own brother, right? And, and I think for a lot of us, sometimes our own family members are the hardest people to invite um, to come see Jesus, right? Or to, to invite um, and, and to share the gospel with. Um, or for, for you, it might be people at work are the, some of the hardest people. Some of the people that are closest to you Sometimes the hardest people. Um, but there are actually some encouraging stats out there that I just wanted to share with you. Um, one, um, uh, a, a book called the, uh, in a book they, they look at a lot of, you know, a lot of these statistics. And um, it says that 82% of unchurched are at least somewhat likely to attend church if invited. So 82% of people, 8 out of 10 people might come if they were just invited. And yet only 2% of church members invite an unchurched person to their church. 98% of churchgoers never extend an invitation in a given year. And a study including more than 15,000 adults revealed that about two-thirds are willing to receive information about a local church from a family member. So two-thirds, two, uh, a little less <laughs> than your friends, I guess. Um, and 56% from a, from a friend or, or neighbor. Um, the message is clear that the unchurched are open to conversations about church. The issue of affinity also surfaced. Um, 35% indicated that they would be inspired to attend church if they knew that there were people like me there. And so, um, some, you know, the, the, the question for us is, who will invite these people? You know, who will invite the people that are closest to us? Will it be, will it be us? And um, don't think that it's all on you. You know, don't think that it's just you out there and you have to invite people and uh, you have to be kind of the, uh, you know, the, the Lone Ranger type Christian. It's, it's a group effort, right? And so um, something that we can do together, um, that we can be doing together to bring people into a spot where they can experience, so they can interact with God and um, through Christ is we can be just building relationships. So building relationships, working on relationships at fa- with family, working on repairing some relationships with family sometimes, working on relationships at work. Um, so maybe some people outside nine to five, 
at school, um, maybe starting new hobbies where you're, you're meeting people um, that you don't normally meet or that you wouldn't normally run into. So building relationships, also inviting in community. So inviting people into things like lunch today. Um, lunch today is very um, low pressure, but there's going to be a lot of Christians there. And we're, we're going to, you know, you're going to be able to at least know in Menifee, in our community, where a weekly Bible study would be. And so you can invite there, have a meal with people, invite them to church. And then finally, we want to make sure that we're building relationships, we're inviting into community, but we're also sharing the gospel. So we're also being a community where um, the gospel message is being shared, whether it's up front or in personal conversations. We want to learn how to do that. We want to you know, be recommending podcasts and CDs. Hey, listen to this. Check this out. Um, and then finally, this type of personal invitation can lead to personal transformation. And take a look at the, the end um, here of this, this passage, um, where in, in verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him, and this is, this is Peter, and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So here we get a picture of Peter's origin story, right? He wasn't always called Peter. It, it took meeting Jesus face to face. And we know that as, you know, if you've read through the Gospels, you know that Peter, Peter's journey is, is quite a, a bumpy one. Um, to be that rock that Jesus calls him. So Peter would go on to be one of Jesus' closest earthly companions. He'd be, he would be a pillar in the early church. He would preach some of the most amazing sermons ever recorded, and you can read those in Acts. Thousands of people would come to know Christ from him. He would preach some of the most, uh, or he would write, end up writing two letters of Scripture, um, and uh, he would also live an amazingly influential life. And then at the end of his life, he would be crucified upside down because he didn't want to steal any honor away from being crucified the same way that Jesus was. And this is the kind of life, this is the kind of transformative life um, that coming to Jesus offers. And this is the type of you know, loyalty and courage and care and faithful and perseverance um, that we want and that, and, that, and that God promises us will happen when we come and we experience Jesus on our own. Um, Jesus says to us, trust me to take away your sin, and then trust me and follow my lead. Be like me. Don't you want to be like Jesus? Everybody wants to be like Jesus. I haven't met a person that doesn't want to be more like Jesus. In fact, um, just this week, uh, Justin Bieber said in an interview that he just wants to be like Jesus. Even Justin Bieber wants to be more like Jesus, right? And then you're like, oh, wait a minute, I don't know. Maybe not now. No. No, but everybody wants to be like Jesus. Why? And I think this, um, uh, the, this author captures it. Why does everybody want to be like Jesus? Why do, why do we want to be transformed to be like him? And it's because no one has ever yet discovered the word Jesus ought to have said or the deed he ought to have done. Nothing he does falls short. In fact, he is always surprising you and taking your breath away because he is incomparably better than you could imagine for yourself. He is tenderness without weakness, strength without harshness, humility without the slightest lack of confidence, holiness and unbending convictions without the slightest lack of approachability, power without insensitivity, passion without prejudice. There is never a false step, never a jarring note, 
This is life at the highest. This is the type of life that we're all invited to through gospel proclamation, investigation, and invitation. Let's pray. Um, Father, thank you so much that uh, you have um, spoken to so many of us um, and that you've met so many of us um, on a personal level. Lord, we, we thank you um, that so many of us in this room have had an encounter with Jesus um, that has been completely transformative. Lord, thank you so much that we can look back on our lives and we can see um, a, a time when we saw him clearly for the first time. We trusted him uh, to take away our sin, to live the life that we can't live, um, and, and, to give, and to provide us with um, his spirit so that we can live um, a life that's pleasing to you. And I just pray, Lord, that if there are people here that don't know you, um, Lord, I, I pray that they would be compelled um, to, to come to this Jesus, to investigate him, and to see him uh, for who he is. And Lord, I pray um, that we can uh, join them in that journey. Lord, I pray that um, uh, so many of us here can, can uh, uh, be, be an Andrew, Lord, that, that would bring somebody to Jesus and then um, have their lives completely transformed. We thank you. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church, Menifee. If you would like to know more about the Menifee campus, visit us online at covgrace.org slash menifee.